Good morning. Well, that's a bit of echo, isn't it? Clearly, it makes it sound a bit more profound, perhaps. It's, uh, <laughs> excellent. Anyway, good morning. Um, good to be here to uh, open up this passage, uh, this uh, one from uh, Genesis. And um, just in case you're feeling nervous, I'd just like to reassure you, I am not about to preach for 30 minutes on circumcision, okay? We're not going there. I may not even mention it, or hardly at all. We're not going to have a whole medical thing about circumcision. You can all relax. It's going to be okay. Because, yeah. <laughs> So I'm not going there. Anyway, uh, so we're not doing that. Um, and, um, and, and this is a really, kind of really, I have to say, meaty, kind of deep passage. There's a lot in here. Um, we didn't read the whole chapter. Tom and I have batted backwards and forwards during the week. How much of the chapter do we read, do we try and engage with? So there's quite a lot to try and grapple with in this really profound passage, really significant uh, piece of scripture. And just a couple of other things uh, before I start, really, to just kind of frame it. This is an enormously important passage for lots of people. For the Jewish nation, for Jews today, this is a deeply significant uh, portion of scripture and it's important for us to remember that this was originally it was given to Abraham it was for the people of Israel and obviously then through Jesus it was broadened out but the first 2,000 years after it was written it was for the people of Israel and it's still important to Jews today and I think we need to remember the Jewish context of it I'm not going to focus on that but just to remember that this is uh, really important for others as well as us and I one commentary I was reading this week kind of went, well, this was Abraham, and then it was for the Christians afterwards, and kind of just erased the Jewish bit of it in between, which I thought was outrageous. And we just want to want to put that back in briefly at the start. But also, uh, the bit that we didn't read after that, and I'm not, not going to focus on it, the, the chapter goes on to talk about Ishmael, and God's promise to Ishmael, uh, Abraham's other son, and how he's going to become a great nation. And that is what most Muslim scholars would look to as the spiritual kind of founding of Islam. They would look to that as, as their spiritual father. So our friends over the road, this is also a significant, that whilst this passage might not be significant in itself, but that moment of God blessing Ishmael through Abraham matters to our Muslim friends as well. So it's, it's an enormously uh, complex kind of piece to negotiate. And we just need to remember that for others, uh, they would want to claim something significant here as well. And then just finally, just to let you know, the other thing I'm not going to talk about, I'm going to talk about something, but the thing is I'm not going to talk about, um, we're not going to do the stuff about land. It mentions the land of Cana and the promise of that. That is an enormous topic, really complicated, that needs more than a quick sermon to try and get to grips with. I had the privilege earlier this year of being in uh, Israel and Palestine. I met Jews, Muslims and Christians, both in Israel and in the Palestinian territories, and heard something of the pain and the complexity and the politics of that place at the moment. And passages like this, I know, are used both as a source of comfort and promise and hope, but also as a weapon to exploit and to be used against others. It's incredibly complicated. So that's for another day. But just to let you know, there is a group from uh, Palestine, some Jewish, Muslim and Christian peacemakers called Roots, coming to Birmingham at the end of November. I was able to meet them when I was there. They've been to Birmingham before. And they're going to be doing a, a carol service down in Hall Green. So I'll let you know when they're going to be around. Because if that's of interest to you, they are a brilliant group to listen to on that particular issue. But I'll leave that to them. 
and I'll look at some of the other stuff in this passage. So now, let's pray, and we'll actually look at it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that means so much to so many people, this word that has resonated for uh, four or 5,000 years. We thank you for it, and we ask now that you'd speak to us afresh through these ancient and powerful words. Amen. Um, so we're continuing with this sort of story about God's covenant with Abraham. Um, we heard about the, the first kind of covenant a few weeks ago, and then the stuff in between last week about people trying to take shortcuts. I was listening. And, uh, and, and then we come on to this other passage where there's kind of God revisits Abraham with a kind of an, uh, going over the covenant again. And this happens many decades after the first promise that he would be a great nation. When Abraham's now 99 years old, um, still believing, but you wonder how he was feeling, and God comes and meets him again. And whilst it's a kind of a, a, a reiteration, a repeating of the covenant, this time there's some significant differences to it. And the sort of three or four things I want to just pick up on, just to let you know what I'm going to speak about, then you can doze if you want to. Um, it comes on God's initiative, um, it's public, and it's inclusive. It's got some differences to that first one. But like the first one, it's God's initiative. God takes the first step. It starts there in verse 1. When Abraham was, Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Lord Almighty. And it's really important to remember that throughout Scripture, whatever happens, God takes the initiative. God came to Abraham. First of all, God comes this time. God came in Jesus. It says, doesn't it, before we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the initiative. And, and it's, it's really important just to kind of keep that remembrance that God starts this stuff. We respond to God, but it always comes from God. In my world, in my interfaithy world, I often end up in meetings where people talk about different faiths as being different paths up the mountain, and, and there's God at the top, and there's different paths up the mountain, and I hate that analogy for lots and lots of reasons, um, and so, but I won't go into all of them now, but one of the reasons I hate it is that it has this image of God kind of sitting passively at the top of a mountain, kind of looking down and going, oh look, the Christians are doing quite well on their path, and oh look at the Sikhs come up there one, and, um, and I don't think that, well I know, that isn't what God's like at all. God isn't just sitting on high waiting for us to find him somehow, it makes quite clear in Scripture that if God is on top of a mountain, he's not, um, he comes down. He came to Abraham. He comes to us. He came in Jesus. God takes the initiative and comes to us. And that's what happened in the first uh, version of the covenant two chapters ago. And what happens here? God takes the initiative. But then significantly in this one, and this is where it gets different, God says to Abraham, I am the Lord Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Throughout this covenant, God says to Abraham, and now you have to do something as well. It's a two-way thing. It's not just me saying, here's a covenant, off you go. It's time for you to respond, to do something. And for that to kind of be significant in your life, it's a two-way thing. And God constantly works like that. He constantly says, I come to you, but I want you to respond. Jesus came, he went to his disciples, he took the initiative, and what's the first thing he says? Follow me. I want you to respond. But God goes on meeting with us, and God goes on asking us to respond. 
And we need to remember that that's kind of our relationship with God. It's this constant two-way thing initiated by God, and that's what we see here. I was chatting to a, a theologian a couple of years ago about interfaithy stuff, and I remember him asking me, and he said, do you think that faith is a monkey hold or a cat hold? And I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether you need to go and lie down. I think you may have lost the plot here. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, but he said, lots of people have two different versions of, of how faith works, either like a baby monkey or a cat. Okay? Now, so apparently, and I, I, if you're a, a monkey and you've got a little baby, when the mother monkey kind of wants to go off with the baby monkeys, the baby monkeys climb on and they cling on. The baby monkey, the babies hold on and the mother walks off. The baby does all the clinging. And for some people, faith is like that. We cling on to God. We make our promises, we say our prayers, and then we cling on and we hope that God won't drop us in the process while God is doing what God will do. We hold on. We're the ones doing the clinging. That's your monkey hold. Or there's your cat hold. I don't know if you ever watched a cat carry kittens around. It's completely the opposite way around. If a cat wants to carry a kitten, have you ever seen they grab them by the scruff of the neck? Yeah, with their teeth out. And they turn around like that and like that. And the kittens kind of hang fairly helplessly and can't really do anything because they're grabbed by the scruff of the neck and they're carried round. And some people think that's what faith's like. I've said yes to God and now God's got me by the scruff of the neck and all I have to do is hang there and wait and eventually I'll get to heaven and he'll drop me again and it'll be lovely. And those, and a lot of people, I meet lots of people who live with that view of God. Either I'm clinging on desperately, hoping God won't drop me, I'm working really hard to cling on, or I'm just hanging there because um, God's got me. I don't, need, I don't need to do anything. I just hang around and eventually get to heaven. And when he said this, I said, the trouble is, of course, is actually the metaphor doesn't really work, I don't think, because in Christian faith, I don't think either of those are true. It's a kind of a I don't know, a, a, a conky or a, mon a monk, I don't know, um, a merge between a monkey and a cat, but we'll stop the metaphor there. Um, because constantly, what actually it's about is God taking the initiative and then saying, but you respond. I'm going to pick you up, you hold on, but I'm going to pick you up, but you hold on. We do it together. It's not just us clinging on and God kind of only being half aware we're, the, uh, we're there, or God holding on to us and us not doing anything. We need to get into this idea. It's constantly this. God comes to us. We respond. God comes to us. We respond. It's a two-way thing. And that's what God initiates in this covenant and continues throughout Scripture. So that's the first thing. God takes the initiative, but it's two-way. The second thing about this covenant, and it's different to the first one, it becomes public. In the first one, God goes to Abraham and tells him all this stuff. And he takes him out and they look at the stars and the sand. And then they have that kind of slightly strange thing with cuts of meat and pots of flames kind of going past it. But it was between God and Abraham. This time God says, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change your wife's name. It's going to go public. People are going to know about it. Oh, and the circumcision thing. But people are going to know that things have changed. Because presumably when Abraham went out and people said, oh, Abraham, he went, no, 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 it's Abraham now. Oh, you've changed your name, why is that? Ha ha, well, I'm going to be the father of a great nation. And uh, um, I don't know what he said. But it became public. God's covenant was to say, I'm with you, I call you, I'm going to meet with you in private, 
but now we go public. Being part of my covenant is public and private. And that was a constant ongoing theme of God meeting with Abraham, but then saying, and now it's public. And that goes on with, with the covenant of Jesus. And, and Jesus, when he came, uh, with, we often call it the new covenant, and it kind of fulfills what this covenant is. And we talk about it in communion, don't we? The, this is my cup of the new covenant. But it's still got these same themes of God's initiative and these themes of public and private. Jesus, with his disciples, constantly did these two things. He'd go to away with them and they'd pray, and then they'd be out doing miracles and going to the crowds, and then they'd retreat and go back into private. Constant public, private, public, private. And that was the covenant that God called Abraham into. And that's what God calls us into as well, for our faith to involve this constant being private with God. When I was growing up, back in the olden days, um, there was a lot of emphasis on doing your daily Bible reading. Um, to the extent that you felt a bit of a failure, if you, well, a lot of a failure, if you didn't. Now, can I say, reading your Bible every day is a good thing. If you do that, well done, it's a good thing. Um, but it shouldn't become a kind of stick to beat people with. But actually, to think, what is my private relationship with God? When am I meeting God, just me and God? For ten minutes, half an hour, two hours, whatever you do each day, I don't know how it works for you. Are you nurturing your relationship with God? listening to him, taking the initiative with you each day, responding to him each day. I'd love to tell you I do that every day, but it'd be a lie, so I won't. But I try and do it pretty often. But are we taking that time to be private? But then there's the issue of what does it mean to be public? Abraham went public, had his name changed. What does it mean to be public? We saw a kind of public thing the other week with the baptisms, didn't we? And kind of pools and kind of visitors here. That's one way that it's often done publicly. We've had this fascinating thing this week, haven't we? Of um, the kind of the Queen's funeral and whatever you made of all that and whatever you think of that. There's the Christian faith front and centre of this vast kind of grand pomp and circumstance kind of thing. And whether you like that or not, I don't know. But... The Archbishop of Canterbury got to preach a five-minute sermon that was basically a fairly clear gospel message to almost half the world's population. That's pretty public. Most of us probably aren't going to do that. You may get the chance to preach like that. Probably not. So what does it mean for us to be public? And uh, I was thinking about this because I spend a lot of my time with, with friends of different faiths for whom their faith is very public all the time because of what they wear or because of how they look. It's very obvious. And I know that that is a real double-edged sword. I know full well, I'm sure you'll be aware, that the attacks, the, the Islamophobic attacks against Muslims are almost always directed against women because of the headscarves. One curious little fact is most hate crime, uh, most victims of hate crime are men, apart from when it comes to uh, Islamophobic attacks. Most victims of Islamophobia are women because of the headscarf. There's nowhere to hide. And it, you can't hide, you have to behave yourself. If you're very visibly of a faith, you kind of have to behave yourself. I was, <laughs> I was on a plane the other week uh, on a long-haul flight, and um, I ended up sat, sitting next to a, uh, quite an elderly Sikh gentleman, turban, beard, and we got, had a bit of a chat. He was off to uh, Amritsar, so we talked about the Golden Temple and all that. We had a lovely chat, and, um, and then the plane took off, and, and pretty soon after it took off, he, he called the air steward, and, and she came along, and 
went off again, and then came back two minutes later with a can of Carlsberg beer for him. And I thought two things. One, blimey, you've started early because we've hardly taken off. But, <laughs> um, but I kind of know that if you're wearing a turban as a seat, you shouldn't really be drinking alcohol. Can't have been caught out. Now, I'm not, I didn't say anything because I'm quite nice. Um, but there may well have been six on the plane who went, oh, what are you doing then, mate? He couldn't hide it. But I've also seen the positives. I've got two particular really good friends who I've been with a bit this week. Uh, Nazir, who's an imam, and he looks the part. Big guy, big beard, cap, robe, he really looks the part. And Sukhvinda, who's a Sikh, and again, really looks the part. Big beard, turban, and he often dresses in traditional Sikh dress. And when the three of us are together and they're dressed up, it, it, it's quite entertaining. And we've travelled around quite a lot together in this country and overseas, and I can guarantee you regularly... When the three of us together, people come up to Suki and say, well, what are you? You're a Sikh. Tell us about Sikhi. Don't know anything about Sikhism. And I say to Nazir, well, you're an imam. What are you doing with these guys? Well, you're an imam. No one ever says to me, oh, you must be a Christian. Tell us about it. And at times I get a bit jealous because they have a really easy, hey, I can talk about my faith. It's really easy. And I get, mm. so what does it mean to be public? Some of us might wear symbols, some of us might do things, but I think we have a real challenge about how do we live as public Christians? By the way we live, but also by what we say about the way we live. We're very public here with the Springfield Project, aren't we? People know that's a Christian thing. But I think we have this constant challenge to think, are we being public about our faith? And are we nurturing our individual relationships with God, public and private? And then the final bit I want to do is the most complicated bit. And this is a bit, I have to say, that not all Christians agree with where I'm going to go with this next bit. And we've talked about recently that Christians don't agree with each other, and that's fine. Um, there are lots of Christians who do agree with where I'm about to go with this, so I don't think I'm completely making it up. Um, but if you, you think, oh, I haven't heard that before, or I'm not sure about that, go away, listen to other people, do your own study, come back and tell me, we'll keep the conversation going. Because I think one of the most significant bits about this covenant here, the way God says it, is its inclusiveness. If we read in verses 10, 11 down there, God says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old, must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with money. And so he goes on. And it includes his wife. There, by the way, there is no female circumcision. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it. That is a completely separate thing. There is, there is no mention of that here. That is not happening. But the point is is that all these other folk are included. This wasn't just God saying to Abraham, it's, it's just for you. Suddenly he says, actually, it's for you and your children, your babies, who don't know who I am because they're only babies, and for your generations to come who don't yet know me, and your household, and Abraham's household got very big, with all sorts of hangers-on and servants and, and slaves and, and, and all sorts of people, they're all in. There's no mention here of they're all in as long as they all say the right things and believe the right things. They're just in. Because you've kind of done this, they're all in. I'm including all sorts of people. I'm including babies and therefore people who 
cognitively can't understand who I am, therein. I'm including people who aren't even born yet. I'm including the women in the household. And I'm including kind of foreigners and people who probably don't believe me and worship all sorts of things. They're in the covenant. And that's a really strange way. That's a bit different to what we might expect. It gets really big and really messy, really blurry around the edges. Exactly if you've got a servant and they've got children and they've got cousins, are the cousins nephews in then? Or is it, God doesn't give us a line. And, and part of what we grapple with here is the mystery of the covenant. God doesn't give us a blueprint. He doesn't say, and here's exactly the lines. He doesn't tell us exactly how it works. I remember having an argument with this once about a guy saying, well, is it, is it by blood then? If I, if I prick my finger, is that how it's done? Or is, is, it, is it through the, the womb? Is that? I said, no, it's spiritual. But God hasn't told us how it works. It's a gift that we don't necessarily understand. It's a bit like if someone was to give you an iPhone, um, a brand new iPhone, or other smartphones are available. A, a, a brand new iPhone I guess most of us here have no idea how the things work. I have not one clue how my iPhone works. I use it all the time. And it's a bit like that. We have to accept the gift and go, we don't really understand how all this works. But it does. And so there's this inclusivity that's built into this, that's a bit blurry around the edges of people, God saying, they are born under the covenant. They're part of my family. But it's not a prison. Because the next verse says, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, that sounds quite harsh. He's not broken off from God. But also, you're allowed to leave. You can get out if you want to. This is not a prison. You're, it's okay to go. And I think that's quite important to just, where everyone's kind of included in, they can leave if they want. So does this have any meaning for us today? Where we often talk about Becoming a Christian, joining in, is a very individual act. It's a decision we make on our own. Well, I think it does. And I think it does for two reasons. Um, first one's a little bit complicated, but I, I think we'll get there. First of all, I think it does because I think, just a bit, a bit technical, it a bit depends on what you mean when you say the word you. Now, a long time ago, when I was doing my PhD, PhD I led a lot of stuff around the philosophy of selfhood. If you want to melt your brain, read some of that stuff because it is incoherent and incomprehensible. But, and you get into real deep conversations about, can we ever really use the word you in any meaningful sense? And you think, I think you need to go outside now and calm down because we all do and it's okay. But the word you in English is quite a limited word because we tend to meet, use it singularly. When I, Tom and I have coffee every so often. I say to Tom, do you want to meet for coffee? I kind of presume that Tom's going to turn up on his own. Joe, it'd be lovely if you want to come. You're very welcome. Um, but I kind of just assume it's going to be Tom, because I've said you. And we tend to use you in that sense. Would you like to come? I mean, you as a completely separate individual. You make a decision on your own completely separately. That is quite a recent Western way of viewing humanity. A lot of the world don't view humanity like that, and certainly in the Middle East, certainly at the time of Jesus, when someone said you, what they meant really was you and your family. That's just, that was just the default meaning of you, was you lot. You lot. But it didn't need spelling out because it was just natural. That's just how it worked. So when it says you, it kind of meant you lot. But we've turned you into you. 
And so sometimes we need to restart rereading this as kind of when it says you, it means you lot. And we see that kind of picked up in the New Testament. Peter's famous sermon at the day of Pentecost does this long sermon, and it gets a bit about, um, you, you, know, you can have this salvation, uh, repent and be baptized. Uh, this promise is for you and your children and your household. When uh, Paul is in prison in Philippi and there's the earthquake and, and the prison collapses and the jailer goes, I want to be saved, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, repent and be baptized, you and your household. And we see this sense of God saying that somehow when people are saved, there's this kind of inclusion of other people kind of linked in. That somehow these households are brought in under God's protection, under God's care. And I think it's really important for us to, to have a sense of what that might mean for a number of reasons. First of all, it stops us being too proud about going, we know where the lines are. We've decided who's in and who's out. We know exactly what's going on. Because I think God's saying, do you know what? Round the edges, there's some blurry stuff. And actually, I work with that. I work with that. And it also says there's, I think there's a sense of within families... We grow up in the faith and then choose whether to carry on in it or to leave or not. The people of Israel after Abraham were born into the covenant, but each generation, each person had to decide, am I going to live God's way or not? And sometimes they did, and sometimes, an awful lot of time, they didn't. But they were still born into that and they chose then, so how do I work this out? What does that mean? And this kind of understanding is why lots of people baptise children. You don't have to if you're, if you're a parent. It doesn't kind of cast you off if you do or don't. But it's part of saying these children are born into the faith. They're born under God's covenant, but they might choose whether to, to live with that or not as they grow up. That's their choice, whether they kind of opt out. But that sense of God saying, I include a load of people. When you come into this covenant you kind of bring others with you. And they then work out what it means to respond to God's love. They then work that out. As a child, I was, I was brought up in a Christian family and uh, I went to kind of groups like we have here. Um, I was forever going to, we, have, we used to have big holiday clubs and almost every year we were told that we needed to become Christians and here's how the verse and here's the prayer you needed to say. And every year I was told that and almost every year I stood up and said the verse thinking I need to become a Christian. Um, it's a shame that no one had really, well, none of the leaders, who were very good leaders, by the way, they did all sorts of good things, had never really studied the book of Timothy. Because in Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, remember those from whom you learnt the faith. He says to Timothy, effectively, you've grown up in the faith, now remember it, now live it, embrace it, own it. You don't need to reject your parents and now go into a, a, a new kind of faith because you've been brought up in the faith. Embrace it for yourself. And as a parent, I find this incredibly kind of releasing and encouraging. God saying, your children, are, are, they start off in. They're part of what's going on. And then they choose whether to go with it or not. But actually, they can choose not to be quite with it. But actually, they're still covered by my love and my grace. And as a parent who's got two sons, one of whom is embracing this to the full and one of whom is arguing with it, he argues with it a lot. We have a lot of good discussions. Who is really uncertain, and yet I hold on to this, that God says, but you know, there's still that hope. There's still that grace for you. You're still part of what's going on. And I think 
This is messy. It does leave us going, so, so what about, but what about? But I think that's what God kind of calls us to, to understand that he blurs the edges to include all these other people. And so you might say, well, well, what's the point in doing evangelism? What's the point in telling people about it? Well, first of all, because I think what God wants to do is not be like the cat hole. Do you remember that? We're not just dangling. He says, get out there and live. Have the joy of forgiveness. Have the hope of salvation. Have that. Know that for yourself. Rather than just hang around thinking, is this working or not? Know it for yourself. And live that way of hospitality, of generosity, of love, of forgiveness that we're called to live. But also, not everyone is included. Not everyone was in the people of Israel. Not everyone is within the kingdom. So we go out there and we're public and we tell people about following Jesus and we tell people about how wonderful it is. And some people will go, yeah, and I want in as well. Because it's not just a ticket to heaven. We're not a kitten hanging around. It's a life of forgiveness and hope and love and hospitality and generosity. And that's what we invite people into. But when we invite them into it, we invite them in, well, maybe God does a whole load of other stuff in those families that we don't know about and that we need to just be comfortable with relaxing into. It's messy around the edges. God built in some messiness, and I don't really know why. But that's part of trusting God and saying, I've received the gift even though I don't understand it. And so we have this covenant that we still kind of live under, although it's the new covenant by Jesus, we're still under this and this way of God viewing people and dealing with people. God saying constantly, I come to you and demonstrating that he comes to us and asking us to respond to him every day, every week. God urging us to meet with him privately and to be public in our faith and to say this is for you and your families and generations to come who will all be under my care. Amen.